accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, when you enter into Christian faith, you are given a phenomenal hope in your life. But that hope does not exist in a vacuum. Uh, That hope exists particularly because of the set of beliefs that as a Christian you hold to. And so uh, this is this summer and, and this series is really kind of half teaching. Let's get some theology and let's get some truths down and make sure we understand them. Uh, but, but again, we don't want to just look at scripture and we don't want to just come across these truths so we have more knowledge or so we have more wisdom. We really want to look at these truths and begin to apply them to our lives and, and look at these truths as a way of forming and shaping who we are Uh, as a Christian and who we are in Christ. And so uh, that's kind of what we're doing. Last week we talked about God, and this week uh, we're going to talk about Jesus. Those are pretty good things to talk about at church, don't you think? (laughs) Uh, The way that we're structuring this series is, uh, as a a church, we have a statement of belief. And uh, those we're walking through those statements of belief. And we're not so cocky to think that our statement of belief is the best one that's ever been written uh, or that it fully explains the Christian faith. But we feel like that our statement of belief uh, is very in line with historical Orthodox Christianity, but we've kind of rewritten them in our own words. And so we want to use those as sort of a, uh, as a structure of walking through this series together. And so what we talked about uh, last week was God. And we, we came to these conclusions and... Uh, which, by the way, I wasn't here last week. I was at my uh, niece's wedding in Smith Center, Kansas. How many of you have ever heard of Smith Center, Kansas? Oh, we got some. That is, what, on what occasion have you heard of Smith Center, Kansas? Um, we were driving out there on Highway 36, and uh, you just, you, I mean, you just pass towns that if you blink, you miss it. And uh, I told Amy, I said, you know what, we're really going nowhere, so we have to take the road to nowhere. Um, And that, of course, is a crack on my brother who has lived there for about five or six or seven years. (laughs) Seven years. Uh, But I I do want to tell you a story about Smith Center, Kansas. They have the best soft serve ice cream on the face of the planet. This has nothing to do with God or Jesus. (laughs) It's just, I just kind of wanted to tell you about my family life and kind of what I experienced and... Uh, all of that. They, they have these things. You go to this place called Jiffy Burger. Uh, it's in a double wide trailer. <laughs> and you, uh, I'm, you guys think I'm making this up. I am not. I am not making this up. So you go to Jiffy Burger. It's in a double wide trailer. And uh, you go up to the window and you order this thing called a Cyclone, which is their version of a Blizzard. And at Dairy Queen, uh, it costs about $7 for a Blizzard. And they, when you get a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup Blizzard, they, they disintegrate the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. And so you can, like, kind of tell that it's in there, but not really. At Jiffy Burger, you get a large cyclone uh, for $2.50. It's as big as your head. And they, I'm pretty sure they don't even cut the Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. They just give you, like, eight of them and then just drop it in the ice cream. Uh, it is truly, truly a wonderful experience. And so if you are ever to the, on the road to nowhere... And you happen to go by Smith Center, stop at Jiffy Burger, and you will be blessed because the Lord's presence is in that place. When the ice cream is that good, the calories don't count. So that's what I've always said. All right, so, um, so that's where I was last week. And we, we actually gave the message uh, via video and filmed uh, myself. 
Um, and, and some of you may have noticed that during one like really peak point of the sermon, I kind of stepped forward, and I was like, God is like, you know, and I was really getting into it, and then my head was chopped off. And there were like two of me, you know, and it was like really hard to decide which Andy do you look at. Um, so thanks for um, sticking with us. That was just an experiment. Uh, we, we may try that again. We may not. Um, but uh, I, I sure miss it when I'm gone. Uh, but for those of you who did not have the delight of being here last week, uh, then let me tell you what we talked about. We talked about God, and we came to these, uh, we, we learned these truths about who God is. Number one, God is eternal. God is eternal. God has always been uh, and always will be. He truly is the Alpha and the Omega. The Bible begins by saying, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. In other words, the Bible does not seek to prove the existence of God. It assumes it. It assumes the existence of God. And so God is eternal. And then uh, God is creator. Uh, the, all that we see and the beauty that we see around us, particularly in this part of the country. I will tell you that Kansas has a beauty of all of its own uh, as well. If you want to see a beautiful sunset, see the sunset over a wheat field in Kansas. It really is beautiful. And, uh, and so all the beauty of creation points us to a creator. God is eternal. God is creator. And then we talked about this theological um, word called Trinity. Uh, Trinity, who is not the female lead in the Matrix, but rather, uh, sorry, that's like old now. I, I, I keep forgetting that the Matrix was like forever ago. Um, but, uh, but the Trinity is a way of describing that, that the one God exists in Three persons. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And what I, what I wanted us to understand last, last week, and I, and I think that's really important as we go through, especially the first three weeks of this series, is that the Trinity is not a hierarchy of the persons of God. It, it's not like God the Father is, is sort of number one and at the top, and he's the coolest, and he's like the big guy upstairs, and he's sort of mysterious, and we don't really know him. And then, but number two, really central, and the, and the guy that we really come to worship today is Jesus, and then number three, not quite as cool as Jesus, uh, but still kind of there, but maybe even more mysterious, what does he do? Uh, the Holy Spirit. It's not a, a hierarchy of who God is, but rather I want you to understand the persons of God, the, 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 the Trinity, the three persons, the, the three essences of God as being a circle, not a hierarchy, not a one, two, three, but a circle. And, and what that helps us to understand is that that God in himself is in perfect relationship. God does not need you to be in relationship with him for him to be fulfilled. But rather, he created us because he wants us to love him, because out of the perfect unity and relationship of the Trinity, out, overflowing out of all of that is a love that would create and invite us back in to experience that love and relationship in him. And so God does not need to, he didn't need to create you and I uh, in order to love him back so that he might uh, be fulfilled, but rather it was because of the tremendous love that already existed in God that he poured out his love, created us, and then invites us in. Does that make sense? Um, and so God is Trinity, which is another way of saying that God is relational. God is deeply relational. He's not um, 
He's not an impersonal force in the world who created and then just set the world on its course uh, and now doesn't care about our lives. God is deeply relational. And then we ended by saying uh, the, the perfect expression of that relationship is that God is love. God is love. And you'll notice that the Bible does not say God is loving. To say that God is loving is to take what we understand about love, the characteristic of love, and apply it to help us to understand God. Now, this is, this is a pretty grievous error when you understand how, uh, how distorted our cultural view of love is from those novels with the sexy people on the cover uh, to the movies to uh, songs. Uh, most songs aren't about self-giving love. Most songs are about self-promoting lust. And we just, instead of saying, I'm full of lust, we just say, I'm full of love. And we trade the terms. So, so we, we, as a culture, we don't understand love. So, to, so if we were to say God is loving, we would take our cultural understanding of what love is and then apply it to God, which would lead us to all sorts of, of impossible conclusions, such as, oh, if this is happening to me, God must not love me. But rather, the Bible says God is love. And so we need to take what we know about God and who God is revealed to be in Scripture in order to understand love so that when we receive all these cultural messages, we have a filter by which to understand is this true love. Are you with me? All right. So God is eternal. God is creator. God is trinity. And God is love. I just preached last week's message in five minutes. Wasn't that good? Okay. Today I want to talk about Jesus, who is one of, if not the most controversial figures in all of history. And this book is about Jesus. All of the Old Testament leads us to understanding this person who shows up on the scene in the New Testament. And then all of the the New Testament after the Gospels is is commentary and helping to apply and and understand what Jesus and the work of Jesus really means. And so he is one of the most controversial figures in all of history, but the truths about him can be stated in just a moment. And in fact, just a sentence we can say, we can preach a sermon on Jesus. We can say, Jesus is the Son of God who paid the penalty of sin by dying on the cross for our salvation. And then we can spend a lifetime beginning to unpack that and understand it and apply it. But in order to really understand something, and this is what I want to challenge some of you today uh, with, is that in order to truly understand something, we have to stand under it. In other words, if we want to understand who Jesus is today, if we want to, if we want to begin to uh, get knowledge of who Jesus is, if we want to understand him, I want to first encourage you for even just a moment, if you're not a person of faith, if you're just here exploring faith, if you're not sure about this Christianity thing, it doesn't matter where you are, but if for just a moment, if you want to understand Jesus, if you could stand under the authority of the word of God, I believe you will leave here today with greater understanding. But if you sit there and play too cool for school and play big, big doubter and all of these things, then you may walk away saying, man, that sermon sucked. Okay? So if you want to understand, you have to first stand 
under. But we can also say a lot of things about Jesus in just a moment. He's a friend of sinners, full of grace. He's our mediator, our high priest. The Bible says that Jesus is resurrection. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the king. He's the sacrificial lamb. And yet to explore all of what this means takes a lifetime. And so each Sunday we gather together, regardless of the scripture topic of study, it is really an exploration of who Jesus is. And I hope that you find that when you come to church here. Uh, that it doesn't matter whether we're studying how to have a good relationship, how to, how to be married, how to prepare yourself for marriage, how to be in good relationship with other people uh, that isn't in a romantic setting. It, it doesn't matter if we're talking about the Old Testament. Everything is ultimately an exploration of who Jesus is. And so today we're here to talk about Jesus. And it would be impossible to sum up all that he is in one message on a Sunday morning. So what I want to do today is walk through our statement of faith that describes who Jesus is and allow it to encourage us, allow it to teach us, and allow us to be inspired. But I want to make sure that this is clear right off the bat. Our exploration today is about a person, not a principle. When we talk about exploring Jesus We're not talking about exploring some sort of generic principle that the scripture teaches us about. What we are exploring today is actually a who we are exploring today. We are exploring a person who loves you, who desires relationship with you, and who cares about you. So we have to place all of the truths that we talk about, not in context of sort of this generic principle sitting out here, because too often in Christianity we make Jesus a principle, right? When really, he's a person. And too often we, we, we turn Jesus into a principle and we practice religion, when actually what Christianity is about is about placing our faith in a person, and being in relationship. Okay. So, uh, so I want to read our statement of faith about Jesus. This is not our scripture for this morning, by the way. Some of you are like, I went to that church. You know what? He, just, he didn't even read the Bible. He just used a statement of belief, and it was terrible. We're going to talk about some scripture. Uh, but remember, the, the structure of the, the, the message is our statements of belief. So here's our statement of belief, and then we'll look at some scriptures uh, to begin to understand why we say this. We believe that Jesus is the only Son of God. He became human through the virgin birth and lived a sinless life that ended in his dying on the cross for the salvation of all people. Now, three days later, he rose from the dead to display his power over sin and death, and he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father to intercede on our behalf. And he will return to earth one day as king, and all who put their faith in him will receive eternal life. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us today. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to gather in your presence. And God, as we open up your word and as we seek to uh, understand your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, God, would you give us minds of understanding, but would you give us hearts of application? And Lord, if, if you would, through your Holy Spirit, want to invite anyone into faith today, we would welcome that. We would celebrate that. And so, Lord, would you prepare our hearts to hear a word from you 
And as we explore these truths, may we realize that we are entering into an exploration of the Messiah, our Lord and Savior. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our statement of belief begins by saying Jesus is the Son of God. There are several passages of Scripture that identify Jesus as being the Son of God. I want to read just two of them. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says this, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. And the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. Now, we could have used that as our Bible verse today. That covers almost everything we're going to talk about today. But primarily what I want to point out now is that it said... There, that God, that Jesus is God's son. In the past, God spoke to us through the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son. Do you want to know what Jesus says or what God says about something? Read His Word, study the life of Jesus. For Jesus is the revelation of who God is. You want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. Because Jesus is not only his son, but the exact representation of his being. Now, another one that mentions Jesus as the son of God is Luke chapter 22, verse 70. Then they all asked, are you then the son of God? And he replied, you are right in saying that I am. That's Jesus himself saying, yes, in fact, you have identified me correctly. I am indeed the son of God. Well, that's really good theology, but what does that mean? That's my other voice. (laughs) What does that really mean? Well, what it means to say that Jesus is the Son of God is to say that Jesus is divine. Jesus is 100% God. He is the exact representation of the essence or the being of who God is. That is to say that if Jesus is the Son of God and it means that he is divine, then it places him firmly as, as the second person in the Trinity. as being part. He's in the circle. He's in the inner loop, right? So Jesus is divine. That means that he carries The capability of God. He carries the capacity of God. He carries the creativity of God. And we see this throughout his ministry where he's performing miracles, where he's healing people miraculously. He's doing all sorts of things that that communicate to us this is divine power at work. Jesus is the Son of God, which is to say that Jesus is divine. But what's also interesting is that in the New Testament, Jesus also refers to himself and is referred to by others as the Son of Man. So he's the Son of God, divine. But on the other hand, he's also the Son of Man. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus is asking Peter who he thinks he is, and he uses the Son of Man, to refer to himself. He asks the question about, he's asking Peter 
to recognize his divinity, but in doing that, he also does something very curious. And he says, Peter, who do you say the Son of Man is? And Peter says, well, you are the Messiah, Son of the living God. And in fact, you are right, he says. And so we have this Son of God, Son of Man. Well, if, it, if to say that Jesus is the Son of God means that Jesus is divine, then to say that Jesus is the Son of Man is in the same breath to say that Jesus is also 100% human. And that's a core understanding of who Jesus is. We have to begin to understand that, well, is it, is it like a, a scale where Jesus is kind of like 50-50, so together he's 100%? No, he's 100% divine. He carries the creativity, capability, and capacity of all of who God is. And yet at the very same time, he is 100% human. And we see evidence of this all over scripture. It says in John 1, chapter 14, or verse 14, that, that the word of God was made flesh. Uh, he is, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says, he is like us, his brothers, the son of man, like us, we're called his brothers in every way. So Hebrews in chapter 1 says Jesus is the exact representation of the being of God. And then one chapter later he says he's exactly like you in every way. Jesus is 100% divine, 100% human. We also know this, uh, so he was made flesh, he's like us in every way. But then we see all these other things. Jesus wept. Jesus grew tired in John chapter 4. Jesus has this deep emotional life that we see throughout the Gospels. Uh, and, and what I want to say to you is, is not just facts. Jesus is divine. Jesus is human. But what I want to say to you is we have to hold these in balance together. But operationally in our lives, practically in our lives, we tend to weigh one side more than the other when it comes to Jesus. We either like the really human Jesus who can identify with all of our human things. He was tired. He has this deep emotional life. He, he was tempted in every way. And he can, he can identify us. We weigh too heavily on that side. Or we weigh too heavily on, on Jesus' is God side. And if we tip the scales this way, if we say that Jesus is, let's say, 75% divine and 25% human then all of a sudden we have a Messiah who is untouchable, not able to identify with you or I. But if we tip the scales too far this way and we say, well, Jesus is actually mostly human, like let's say 75% human and like maybe 25% divine. Well, then all of a sudden we have a person, but if he isn't truly divine, he's in no position to win our salvation on our behalf. You see, if we proclaim this truth that Jesus died for us, we have to hold together in the same breath that he is 100% God, able to win our salvation on our behalf, and yet 100% human. Are you with me? All right. So, we must hold these together in balance. Well then, our statement of belief goes on to say, he became human through the virgin birth and he lived a sinless life that ended with his dying on the cross for the salvation of all people. And three days later, he rose from the dead to display his power over sin 
and death. We have to hold these two together because who he is and what he has done for us cannot be separated. Who he is and what he's done, his person and his work cannot be separated. It was only he who could have accomplished for us the work of salvation. If it was just any other person who was, who was a really good guy and mostly sinless but not divine, he would have died and nobody would have cared. In fact, there have been thousands, perhaps millions of people just like that have died. And people mourn their death, but it, we're not still talking about them. And our lives haven't been dramatically changed. You see, it was only he that could have done this work of salvation. And it was only his person that could have done this work. The work could only be done by the person. We cannot separate the two. And so Jesus has won for us our salvation. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. He says, says this, and I say he, the author of Hebrews, we don't know who it is. We just call him the preacher, which is why I like the book. It's written by a preacher. He says this, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. And he might free those who all their lives have been held by slavery, held in slavery by their fear of death. For sure it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, that's you and I. For this reason, he had to be made like them. This is explaining to us that Jesus had to be fully divine and he had to be fully human in order to win our salvation. For this reason, he had to be like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. And he is because, so he is able to help those who are being tempted. It calls Jesus our high priest. In the Old Testament, the high priest was um, the priest of a tribe that would represent the entire tribe to God on their behalf. And once a year, he would go into the innermost part of the temple uh, called the Holy of Holies, and he would present a sacrifice that would cover not only his own sin as the high priest, the human high priest, but also all the sins of his entire tribe that he represents. And so in, in many ways, he would go into the Holy of Holies representing the people before God. But he would offer the forgiveness of God to the people as well. He would come out of the Holy of Holies and say, because of this sacrifice, God has forgiven all of your sins. And so the high priest stood exactly in the middle as a mediator for his tribe before God. So he would represent the people before God, and then he would turn around and he would represent God before the people and the love of God and the forgiveness of God. And the Bible says that Jesus is our high priest not as one who must represent his own sin before the Father, but as a high priest who was sinless and only needed to offer one sacrifice, himself. And so, so often we we are given a gospel that is like Jesus represents the great love of God to us in in his mercy and his grace and in his forgiveness. And that is absolutely true. But what so often we miss is that Jesus 
represents you before God and wins your salvation. Which is why they say things like, it doesn't matter how many steps you've taken away from God, right? I, I, I used to be over here. I used to have this really close relationship with God. and He was doing cool things in my life. And then something happened. I just stopped going to church or this or that or who knows what. I stopped going and I began to turn away from God. And the, the truth of the gospel is God is chasing us. He's always right behind us. He stands as our high priest representing us before God and God to us so that if I've walked far away from God, it's only just one step back into his arms and into his grace. That's the beauty of God as high priest. And also, Jesus, because he's 100% human, is familiar with your temptation. Isn't that good news? I mean, it would be one thing to have a Messiah that was out of touch. I mean, I'd still be thankful for a Messiah who was just kind of like, couldn't identify, or, or I couldn't identify with him, and he was just kind of out of touch. I'd be like, you know, thanks, and I appreciate all that good work that you did for me. But it's a whole new level to have one who stands in the gap for us, who has gone through what you've gone through. I mentioned earlier that Jesus wept. There's two places in the scripture where Jesus wept. One, when his best friend Lazarus died. And one, when he was standing and looking over the city of Jerusalem. And his heart broke for the people there. You see, God knows what it's like to have a broken heart. He knows what it's like to mourn. He knows what it's like to be tempted in every way that you and I have been tempted. When Jesus is tempted in the desert, these are temptations to exploit his position. How many of you in your business have ever been tempted to exploit your position and take advantage of, of your rank or, 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 or do something that is unique to your position in the company, wherever it is, and exploit that? Or exploit someone else. Jesus has all of these temptations and yet was sinless. Making him capable to bringing our salvation. And ultimately what is salvation? And we're going to spend a whole week on talking about salvation. But let me just, uh, let me say this, this morning in light of our discussion on who Jesus is. That salvation means to be rescued. Salvation means to be rescued. Have you ever been in a point in your life, and maybe you're there right now, where you just can't seem to turn the corner? There's that thing that keeps plaguing you. There's that habit that you can't overcome. There is that, that bitterness, that attitude, that cynicism, that pride, that selfishness, just that broken place within you. And you just feel like your heart is crying out for rescue. This is what salvation is. Salvation is not so much about going to heaven when you die. It is that. God has a great post-mortem experience and plan for us. But it is not just relegated to after you die. God wants to rescue your heart today. And it is because of who Jesus is that he was able to do what he did. Salvation is rescue.
The story of the Bible is a story of a God who entered into human history in order to rescue his creation and bring them back to himself after they disobeyed him. But this is not just a story on a page. It is your story. It is my story. Because all of us have turned our back on God in some way. All of us are in need of rescue. And because of his love for you, he has made rescue available to you. You see, every story borrows from the gospel story, the real story, the true story, the original story. Why does the good guy always win? Because the good guy has won. Every story borrows from the story that you and I find ourselves in. And man, wouldn't it be sad For us to see rescue in the shape of a cross and deny it. Say, God, I can do it on my own. I got this covered. And then this this passage in Hebrews says that salvation is so that uh, to free those who all their lives have been held in slavery. You see, the joy of Christ's salvation is freedom from the things that have held us in chains. How many of you that have been Christian for a long time can testify to that? Testify is like agree with. It's an old school term. But it's like give an amen to, right? Hands. How many of you can testify to being freed from slavery because of your faith in Christ? See, the joy of Christ's salvation is freedom from the things that held us in chains. Addiction, attitude, selfishness, bitterness, all of these things. I want to read another passage from Hebrews. We, we could have just, this is a Bible study on Hebrews this morning. Hebrews is a great book if you want to learn about Jesus. It says this, Therefore we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with perseverance the race that has been marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. What does that mean? That means that your faith in Christ is made possible by Christ. That if Jesus were not to first go ahead of you and live a sinless life and then earn salvation on your behalf, faith in him would not be possible. That your faith in Christ is made possible because of Christ. He is, to say that he is the pioneer, the Greek word speaks of being the author of something. It is Jesus, faith originates in Jesus and then it is finalized also in Jesus. Jesus. You see, you and I have been marked out a, a, a line, a path, a journey of faith, and we walk it with imperfection. Can I hear an amen? But Jesus was given a journey of faith, and he walked it in perfection. And so what happens is when we go to place our faith in someone, we place our faith in Jesus 
who has already originated our faith through his life and then perfected it by walking sinlessly to the cross to win your salvation. But here's what happens. So many times in the Christian life, we don't place our faith in the one who has already completed faith. We place our faith in our ability to have faith. Ooh. It got real personal all of a sudden. How many times do we walk through life and we're like, man, if I could just have more faith, then so-and-so would be healed. Man, if I could just have more faith, I wouldn't struggle like this. If I could just have more faith, fill in the blank. How many times do we say that? When we say, if I could just have more faith, what we may be doing, what we are probably doing, is we're actually placing our faith in our own ability to conjure up faith. When what we should be doing is instead of focusing all of our efforts and trying to to conjure up more faith, is we ought to simply approach the throne of God, place our face before the cross, and say, Jesus, thank you that you have already had faith on my behalf. God, Jesus, thank you that you have already lived out a perfect life of faith. And so I place my faith, not in my ability to have faith, but I place my faith in you so that when God looks at me, he sees me through the lens of the sinlessness of Christ. So that my righteousness is not one of my own, that my righteousness is not earned on my ability to do good works. My righteousness is not earned on my ability to, to conjure up faith, but my righteousness is based solely on the righteousness of Christ who has already walked before me. Jesus is the pioneer, the author of our faith. He makes our faith possible. And yet, in the very same moment, he has already completed our faith. Think of it this way. He has had faith on our behalf. Think of it this way. If you're in relationship with with someone and you're you're in a close relationship, you're living in God-honoring community with this person, and you are going through a struggle where you can't even seem to to pray. I mean, it's just like your heart is so broken. Your perspective is so blinded. That you just feel like God is so far away. And yet this person that that you are in community with, instead of, of trying to conjure up all of these things on your own, you metaphorically crawl up into their faith and they pray on your behalf and they, they, they have faith on your behalf and they do all of these things and it gives you strength. Have you ever had a time like that? Where you had to depend on the faith of someone else? Come on, somebody. I'm not up here alone, am I? You've had times like that. This is precisely what Jesus does for us. What your friend has done for you is what Jesus does for us. Because guess what the next line is? He's the author of the perfecter uh, of our faith, and, and this is what it means. But then the story of the gospel and the story of Jesus says that he was then ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God and he intercedes on our behalf. 
Did you know this morning that Jesus is praying for you? Is that good news? I mean, I could use all of your prayers. If you think about your pastor this week, I could use your prayers. But thank God that Jesus is right now sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for me, praying for me. See, in the same way that we had to metaphorically crawl up into the faith of our friends so that they would pray on our behalf. We just couldn't conjure it up on our own. We didn't have the heart for it. We were too broken in that time and in that season to be able to pray. We depended on them. May we come to a place in our life where we depend on Christ and we place our faith in him. That doesn't mean that you should never pray. You know, Jesus is praying for me, so I don't have to. That's not the point. If you come away today saying that, you've missed it. You've missed it. But the point is the encouragement that comes that the very Son of God is praying and interceding on your behalf. Well, there's, there's a few things that I want to point out. He intercedes for us when we sin. When we sin. You know, the scripture is clear that... Um, that the power of the cross and the work of Jesus' salvation is so that we would be set free from a life cycle of habitual sin. And, and there are some people in Christianity that are just like, we're just blatant sinners all the time. We're just sinning, 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 can't help it. But I think the Bible speaks to the truth and the power of the cross that Jesus wants to set us free from this cycle of habitual sin in our lives. And so the scripture says this. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Now that's discouraging, isn't it? Yeah, power, the cross, not sinning. And John writing, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Monday morning. Oh, boy, did I mess that up. Let's see, that whole not sinning thing, that lasted about 30 hours. Here's the, but, but it follows with good news. I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, who is Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the righteous one. The one interceding on your behalf, your advocate before the Father when you do sin is the very one who did not sin. Does this make it sense? Let me ask you a question. Are you falling more in love with Jesus these last few moments? I hope so. <laughs> so when we do sin, we have an advocate. The word advocate literally means intercessor. We have an intercessor before the Father. When we sin, Jesus stands in the gap. The effects of his death, in other words, are continual and ongoing. Jesus died in a moment in history, and then he rose again in a moment in history. But the effects of those two acts are ongoing. And so that when you and I sin, 
the effects of Jesus taking on that sin and paying the penalty for that sin are still ongoing. And the reality is also true that if the penalty for our sin has been paid, we can also go on and live in new resurrected life. The the effects of his death and his resurrection, though they are one moment in history, move through all of history, forwards and backwards in history. And that can only be done by someone who's 100% human and 100% divine. And so when we have an advocate before the Father, we have an intercessor before the Father when we sin. When we sin, Christ is there to stand in righteousness for you so that you may have a righteousness that is not your own, but from him. Some of us just need today to come to an understanding to try, well, we need to stop trying to earn our own righteousness and stand in the beauty of the righteousness that has been given to us by Christ. I am preaching a lot better than you guys are responding. You guys are way too shy. Way too shy. He, and then this, he, our intercessor, he presents your prayers to the Father. We talked about this in our prayer series just a couple weeks ago when we said that we pray in Jesus' name. But we pray in Jesus' name because he is representing us before God the Father. Jesus the Son is ushering our prayers to the Father and is our advocate before him. So we can pray boldly because of what Christ has done for us. The last line of our statement is this. He will return to earth one day as king. And all who put their faith in him will receive eternal life. Jesus is king. And the story of the gospel and the story that you and I find ourselves in, because this book, um, tells us the ending, but we find ourselves in the story before the ending. Do you recognize that? Uh, that it's not like, oh, the Bible ended and, and now we're just kind of floating off in, in the time-space continuum. <laughs> but rather we find this is a story and we find ourselves right in the middle of it. And what the story tells is that Jesus, the king, is building and establishing a kingdom. And what the kingdom of God looks like is when God and the ways of God are done perfectly on earth as in heaven. And so we live in a world where we see all kinds of brokenness. And uh, you probably heard on the news about the shooting in California. More shooting. More evil. We live in a very broken world. And yet we see flashes of hope and of light. We see the kingdom of God when a group of people called the community of of God, the church, gather together to serve the people in their city that are often ignored and robbed of their dignity. That's the kingdom of God breaking in. And that's God establishing his kingdom, not only on earth, but in our hearts, that we would respond to that. 
We see the kingdom of God when people from all over the world, particularly all over the nation, go to help people in Moore, Oklahoma. We see it in really dramatic ways like that, but we also see it in really small ways. We see the kingdom of God when, when our friend comes to us and, and says, you know, there's this thing between us, and uh, I just believe that maybe I've been holding some bitterness towards you, and I want to ask your forgiveness. And the, a relationship is reconciled. That's the kingdom of God. That's the way of God having its full reign in that moment and in that place. And so what this story is ultimately about is that Jesus is already a king and the king, but that he is actively building his kingdom. And he's doing it through this little thing called the church. And the church is not a building located at 2101 South LeMay or any other building. But the church is the people of God. And so you and I are, are not called to observe faith for our own benefit. We're not even called to study faith for our own understanding. Those are good things. But ultimately what we are called to do is participate get involved, offer ourselves to other people in community, give ourselves uh, to them that they might experience community, and get involved in the life of a church and the work of the kingdom. And we can do that in very official ways. This is a ministry of the church. And we can do that in very uh, countless uh, unofficial ways where we offer words of hope to our coworker, where we pray for someone, a neighbor that is hurting, or however the Lord stirs you to work. But the point of Jesus is not to learn truths or principles. The point of Jesus is to fall deeper and deeper in love with the person of Jesus and to get involved in the story that is being told in the world. Thanks for listening to the Emmaus Road Podcast. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. If you'd like to support the ministry of Emmaus Road, you can do so online. Just visit theroadfc.org and click online giving.